You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. Someone meets you for the first time and they say, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. In response to that, what's your standard answer? How do you frequently describe yourself, introduce yourself? We call that our identity. How you perceive yourself, or at least how you present yourself for others to perceive you. And whether we realize it or not, what we think we are determines how we behave, what decisions we will make, the things we will and will not do. And as we hit the fifth chapter of Esther, what you're going to see is a case study of Esther and her identity and a guy by the name of Haman and his identity. And and let me say this, uh, once we understand ourselves and our identity, it you think back, you know, you know what? This started when we were little. You know, were you the cute one, the not so cute one, the chubby one, the skinny one, the, the smart one, the funny one? As you get a little bit older, are you the athletic one, the creative one? Identity starts to get established and you start getting nicknames, positive and negative. You hit middle school and everyone's confused about their identity. That's the main objective of middle school. You're confused, and there are photos that you will regret for the rest of your life. And in middle school, you don't know who you are, so you're like, who am I? With what group do I fit? Because that comes the age when people start grouping themselves according to identities. You know, like jocks over here, the artistic ones over here, the smart kids over here. Then you approach high school years and your identity is largely shaped by what's your grade point average? Are you dating anyone? What are your hobbies, your likes, your activities? How do you present yourself? That helps establish your identity. That's why sometimes students will have a crisis and so they'll change the way they dress, their hair color, so that they can fit in with the particular group that they're trying to hang out with. And what takes us all to the next level is social media. So Snapchat and Instagram, what photos am I going to post to show you who and what I am? And Facebook, what am I going to tell you about what I'm doing and not doing? And Twitter, well, what am I going to comment on? What am I going to link to? is all creating an identity, who I am, or at least who I want you to perceive me to be. It continues into college. Then you have a chance at a redo. Maybe your high school years weren't all that great, so you want to reinvent yourself, and I'm going to do things differently. And again, my identity gets established by dating relationships and GPA and college major and activities and groups. And then you graduate, and now you're trying to establish your identity by what job you get. Are you going to grad school? Are you seeing anyone? Where do you live? What kind of car do you drive? Do you have a social life? And it continues. You get married. Now your identity is in relation to someone else. And then it's, can we have kids? If you have kids, 
do you like these kids? <laughs> what are we going to do with these kids? Can someone please take these kids? All of a sudden, you have an identity crisis because you have a life change. And what happens is that some of us never really get it clear of who we are or who we're supposed to be. And so there's this continual confliction. It's as if we never finish changing. That brings us back to the story of Esther. We discovered in chapter 2 a few weeks back that Esther was a woman with two names. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. Esther is her Persian name. And throughout the book, there's this continual identity crisis. Well, who is she? Is she a Hebrew woman or a Persian woman? Is she one of God's people or not one of God's people? Is she having her ultimate allegiance to King Xerxes or to the king of kings? How many of us are like that? We have a dual identity, sometimes Christian, sometimes not Christian, sometimes holy, sometimes unholy. Sometimes living for God, sometimes hiding from God, sometimes generous, sometimes greedy. And what happens in chapter 5 is through a series of circumstances, it presses Esther to arrive at her identity. Now, the same thing happens to Haman, but these two are going to respond differently. We're going to start with Esther. Here's how chapter 5 opens. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. Now, according to historical records, this was a magnificent throne room. It was this large room that had 36 pillars around it. The ceiling was 65 feet high. And it was entirely designed so that wherever you stood in this room, you had an unobstructed view of the king's throne. This was all about the king on his throne, in his glory, living and reigning like a little god. And Esther enters that place. And when the king saw Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out her held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Now, here's what's going on. Remember, Xerxes is king of all of Persia. He rules and reigns the largest, most, influence, most influential, most powerful nation empire, really, in the world. And he deposed of his first wife, Vashti, because she did not do what he asked her to do. She disobeyed when he wanted her to parade, parade in front of a mob of drunken men. She said no. He divorced her. He banished her. Some four years later, he holds a competition where he spends one night at a time with hundreds of women and takes the one that is his favorite to be queen. That's Esther. Esther. Now, at this point, they've been married some five years, and they're not close. We read at the end of chapter 4 that she has not seen him in 30 days. 
It's not like he's out on some mission field. They're living in the palace together. She's over in the women's quarters. He's over in the men's quarters. And probably that means he is bringing in women from his harem night after night. And he's not had any contact with the queen for over a month. In the meantime, Xerxes has empowered his right-hand man, Haman, and everyone was to bow to Haman per the king's decree. And everyone does except one person, Mordecai, who is a Jew. Mordecai decides that when everyone else bows, he won't. Haman gets furious. And he decides he's not only going to destroy Mordecai, he's going to annihilate, he's going to commit genocide against all the Jewish people. The order has been sealed by the king. Historians say there may be as many as 15 million Jews living in Persia. And they're going to be put to death in a holocaust. Esther's in the palace. She hears of this. Mordecai, her older cousin, but he's more than that. When her parents died, uh, She's left as an orphan. This older cousin, Mordecai, adopts her. He's trying to get word to her about what's going on. You see, she too is Jewish, but no one knows it. Her identity, her true identity has been hidden, and now she has to devise a plan by which to save her people. But here's the problem. The rule is, the law is, you can only come into the king's presence if he invites you. This guy just doesn't want to get interrupted. So he's on his throne in his majestic palace. And if you come before him uninvited, he had a gold scepter in his hand. And if he tipped it towards you, that was the invitation for you to come. You place your hand on the end of it and you were agreeing with him that he was inviting you to meet with him. But if you stood at the entrance, he saw you. He did not tip the scepter towards you. There was only one other option. Your head was cut off. So this is not something that you just take a gamble on. You don't go to meet with a king unless you really, really need to. And what Esther decides is if I perish, I perish. We saw that at the end of chapter 4. Well, as it turns out, as we've read, he does tip the scepter toward her. She receives that invitation. The next verse says, then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther. Now, notice she's respectful. She's direct, she's courageous, she's wise, she's bold, but she's respectful. There's so much to learn for those of us who are under authority, how to deal with, how to engage with those who are in authority. That can be if you're a young person, your parents. If you're an employee, your employer. Whatever the case may be, where you are under authority, even if you don't believe that authority is right. And here, Xerxes is not a right man. He's not a godly man. He's not a good man, but he's a powerful man. 
If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, you know, the guy who established the death sentence, over 15 million Jewish people, of which she's one, though no one knows it. Let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I've prepared for him. What a nice request. Esther, you're here. What do you want? I'd like to throw a magnificent dinner party for you and your right-hand man, Haman. How many of us are a little surprised by that? I mean, what about all the people who are going to die? Well, maybe that would be our downfall. Where there's something so important that you get emotionally ahead of the circumstances and you make it worse. You, you go about it too quickly. You haven't really thought it out. You don't have a game plan. You just kind of freak and leak. She's able to be emotionally composed. She realizes it's not yet time to reveal to the king that he needs to reverse the decree spurned on by Haman to have 15 million lives saved because, <laughs> oh, king, oh, by the way, uh, you're married a Jew. Yeah, we've been married five years. I haven't told you that yet. Oops. <laughs> so rather than Esther launching out with, hey, I'm Jewish, he's Hitler, she's wise about it. First, she's trying to rebuild the, the relationship with the king because that's been strained. He's not seen her in a month. He's not been faithful to her. And she's trying to build that trust while at the same time keeping an eye on Haman and devise this wise plan. So bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asked. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. Well, who wouldn't want to come to a dinner party? I mean, that's all these guys ever did in this book. It's like every page you turn, hey, more wine, more food. That's what they love to do. As they were drinking wine, shocker there, the king again asked Esther, now, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, my petition, my request is this. You can see everybody's leaning in. Okay, what is it that she's going to ask for? If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition, fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. So it's like, what do you want? Well, let's have dinner. Okay, dinner comes. What do you want? Let's have dinner again tomorrow. And then we'll talk about it. Putting all this aside for just a moment, Esther has come into her own faith. She's come into a maturing relationship with God. She's thinking of others now, not just herself. She's active, not passive. She's speaking, not silent. She's taking a risk. She is acting out in a life of faith. And let me say this. What has happened to her is that she has received a new identity. It, it's no longer Hadassah and Esther. This woman no longer has a conflicted identity. She's still the Persian queen. That explains her, but it doesn't define her. 
This is important for your identity. Esther's parents died. She was an orphan. That explains her, but it doesn't define her. Mordecai hasn't been the greatest adoptive father. That explains him. It doesn't define him. She entered into a competition that was really unholy. That may describe her. It doesn't define her. She was the queen of Persia. That may explain her, but it doesn't define her. Her identity has changed. She now knows that she belongs to God. That's why in chapter 4, she invites all of the people to have a fast with her and for her so that within three days, she would go before the king and try to save her people. Isn't it interesting that it was about a three-day time period in which this salvation would, would come about? Does it remind you of another much greater period of three days in which salvation, the ultimate salvation came about. Yeah, think about Jesus in the tomb. But Esther's identity here has changed. She is one of God's people, and that changes everything. You see, if you're not one of God's people, your identity must be achieved. Your identity must be achieved by your beauty, your success, your income, your grade point average, your your dating relationships. If you're not one of God's people, your identity is achieved by your marital status, by your athletic performance, by your parental improvement. It must be achieved by what clothes you wear, what car you drive, what neighborhood you live in. But if you are one of God's people... Your identity isn't achieved, it's received. You are loved, you are forgiven, you are cared for, you're blessed. You have found favor in the sight of God. You don't have to impress anyone, you don't have to do anything. You know what happens when a child is born? The parents love that child. (laughs) Why? They haven't done anything yet, they haven't accomplished anything. They haven't performed. You love them because they're your child. And you see, that child doesn't work for their identity. They work from their identity. Their identity is that they are loved, they are cared for, they are part of the family. So it is with you as a new creation in Jesus Christ You receive a new identity. You don't live for it. You don't try to make it happen. You see, that's the problem with the whole world and and much of advertising and marketing that's pressuring you to compete and, and to purchase so that you can produce an identity. If you truly receive God's love, then we can simply love others without having to try to manipulate them to love us. If you truly receive God's forgiveness, then you can forgive others when they fail you. Esther's identity has changed. And she says things like, if I perish, I perish. It's not that she has a death wish. It's just that her identity is not tied to her living as a queen. Now let's compare Esther to Haman. Xerxes' right-hand man who loves glory and power and recognition and control. His identity is in success. His identity is in public recognition. Here's the next verse. Haman went out. In other words, away from that dinner party, 
He went out that day happy in high spirits. Why? Because Queen Esther had invited him to dinner with just her and the king. I mean, he's made it. He's important. His identity is in his idolatry. And we'll hear about that more in just a moment. I mean, he's Haman the Great now. He can't be happier. This has to be the best day in Haman's whole life. He went out happy and in high spirits, but... When he saw Mordecai at the king's gate, you know, the one who doesn't bow, (laughs) the one who's wearing sackcloth and ashes, the one who's putting on a public display of protest, what Haman observed as he comes, comes out of this party, he sees Mordecai, and what he observed about Mordecai is that Mordecai neither rose nor showed fear in his presence. So Haman was filled with rage at Mordecai. Nevertheless, next verse, Haman restrained himself and went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Haman boasted to them. So what's he going to do? He's going to brag. I mean... That's why he didn't assault Mordecai. As angry as he was at Mordecai, he had something more important in his mind. He had to go home. He had to rush home, gather those that were be a crowd around him, and tell them how great he is and what a wonderful day he had. So he boasted to them about his wealth, his many sons, all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. It's like, I'm so important. I'm BFFs with the king and queen. And you guys, friends and family, you are lucky to know me. Keeps going. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this, this is what he's saying to his wife and friends, but all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. This guy Haman has had the best day ever. I mean, here's, here's his day. I'm second most powerful person on earth. I'm rich. The king is my friend. His wife likes me. I get to do whatever I want. Everything in life is perfect. I even have a wife and some friends. That's a miracle, right? But there's one thing that's not right. One guy in the whole kingdom will not bow down. And that just ruins everything. How many of us does that describe? Most everything could be great. But just one thing is not great. One thing that I would obsess over that was wrong, that was missing, the offense that was there, something failed. And everything else loses perspective. That's Haman. We all get to that place, right? But here it is, it's just one guy and not all that important of a guy at that. I mean, Mordecai is really nothing special. But that's just it. It's really not about Mordecai. 
it's really about Haman's idolatry. The God thing in Haman's life is that he is focused solely on his respect, his honor, his recognition. Mordecai just happens to be the guy who exposes it. Next verse. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, so they're going to give him counsel. Ladies, feel free to give your husband's counsel, but if he's an idiot, give him good counsel, not bad counsel. They're going to give him bad counsel. Here's what they tell him. Have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits. Okay, that's 75 feet. Why so high of a pole? They want it so high, high as possible, so everyone sees, look, you disobey Haman. We get to make a public spectacle out of you. So set up this 75-foot pole and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. This is like a precursor to crucifixion. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. This is where we'll leave Haman for right now. So we have Esther. She's growing and maturing. She's gaining wisdom and patience and self-control. And she's devising a plan on behalf of others. Why? Because Esther's identity is as a child of God. Haman, on the other hand, is wrapped up in himself and others' perception of him. Haman's identity is his idolatry. And what happens is that people violently defend their idols. We see this throughout the book of Acts. Why is it that Paul gets into so much trouble? Why is it that the Christian church has so much conflict? Because Christianity comes along to reset your identity and remove your idolatry. And people violently defend their idols. Yet oftentimes we don't know what our idol is until it's threatened to be removed from us. So you're ready for your question. What is your idol? And if you don't know what it is, follow your emotions. Where do you get happy? Where do you get sad? Where do you get overjoyed? Where do you get depressed? What are you afraid of losing? Where are you afraid of failing? I have good news for you. You don't have to live with your identity in your idolatry. You don't have to. Haman never changes. That's sad. He doesn't repent. We're going to read in a couple of weeks that his life ends miserably, tragically, because idols lie. They promise a heavenly, peaceful existence, and they can't deliver it. Esther, on the other hand, has a change of identity, and her life doesn't end in brutal, shameful tragedy and misery. It's not perfect, but it's noble. What is your idolatry? And let me say this. 
many times, maybe even most times, it can be a good thing in a bad place. Being healthy is a good thing. Being in a loving relationship is a good thing. Being married is a good thing. Children are a blessing. Being a parent is is special. Having a job is a good thing. Performing well in school is a good thing. Maintaining your abilities, whatever they are, academic, artistic, athletic, those are good things. But when that good thing comes in to a God place, then it's a bad thing. But let me close with this. Jesus gives us a much better identity. Haman lived for his glory, but Jesus lives for the glory of God. Haman makes God's people his enemy, but Jesus makes his enemies his friends. Want more good news? Haman made a cross to hang a man upon, but Jesus became a man to hang upon a cross for all people. Haman forced people to bow down to him out of fear, but Jesus invites us to bow down to him out of reverence and love. Haman boasted about what he had done, which is pride. When we boast, it's about what Jesus has done, and that's called worship. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.